This morning we'll look at what Jesus expects from his church so that we as a local church may serve him faithfully. It's no secret that in our age, people want to define the church the way they want to define it. Well, what I'm looking for a church is, what I'd like to see in a church is, and then there's this sometimes short, sometimes lengthy list of things that are found nowhere in the Scripture. Or maybe there are a few things found in the Scripture, but there's less focus on what Jesus expects and much more focus on what the person expects. And many times that comes from a little bit of a reconstructed memory of their last church. Well, the way we did it there was, you know, the way I'd like to do it now. And that may have been fine, that a lot of times people see their former church in a much better light than they did when they were there. So you find your way into a different church and you think, man, it was sure better back there. I sure like, or maybe you think there's some things in this church that are so much better than it was before, but have you stopped to question whether or not you're thinking biblically? Is it just something that's favorable to you because it just is? Or is it, in fact, your devotion to the Scripture, your devotion to Christ, your devotion to a genuine understanding of the biblical church that causes you to say, this is rich. This is something over which I should rejoice. It's not necessarily something over which I should constantly be complaining about my former church. But I can rejoice because God, in His grace, has blessed us with an understanding of what the church is supposed to be, and we're striving to do that. That's the mindset we really should have. And so as I said, we're going to look at what Jesus expects from his church so that we may serve him faithfully as a local church. What does the church do? I have 10 things for you this morning. I'll try to move quickly. Number one, number one, worship the God of the Bible. What does Jesus Christ expect from the members of his church? It's his church, right? What does he expect from the members of his church? He first expects worship of the God of the Bible. Your life is worship, whether or not you think it to be that. You're constantly setting your affections upon something. Something is constantly in your sights as the preeminent, most prominent object of your thinking. Something, always. The command is that that would be the Lord Jesus Christ The greatest commandment, according to Jesus Christ, is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that's to worship Him. And we do that by singing, right? Christians sing. They love to sing. You say, well, there are times where I don't feel like it. Well, there are times where our hearts are not fixed upon Him. We've forgotten His greatness in light of some distraction in this world. But the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy of our worship, and he calls us to sing. And Brad said it well. The Scripture calls us to sing to one another. That's worshiping him. You say, how can that be? Because we're teaching one another. That's what the text says. We're teaching one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And that glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. It's worshiping him as we educate each other with regard to what the Bible says about his character. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. You see that? You were given to him for the praise of his glory. 
It's why you exist. Why do you exist? You know, somebody, some people might say, I'm trying to figure out what God's will is for my life. I'm trying to figure out what God has in store for me. You know, what's the next chapter of my life? The next chapter and the always chapter is worship. Exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the depths of your heart, God looks on the heart. It's not primarily about singing externally, but that should be the natural byproduct. It is the natural byproduct of a heart that loves him, wants to sing those truths to him. Don't you get emotional sometimes when you sing those? I do. You sing those truths uh, about him, to him, but also to the church. Aren't you overwhelmed sometimes? Sometimes it's hard for me to come up and preach because we've just sung a song that is so reflective of the rich truth of God's kindness and his mercy that it's hard for me to... Uh, to gather myself in order to say something that will be meaningful to you because I'm so focused and so overwhelmed by the fact that I, in my wretchedness, could have done absolutely nothing to merit God's mercy. It's an oxymoron. To merit God's mercy, to merit God's grace. I couldn't have done it. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And he, by his grace, according to the kindness of his will, saved me. He caused a dead man to be alive. That's amazing. And so when we sing to him about those things, we're educating each other with regard to those rich and fundamental truths. We are to worship the God of the Bible in spirit and in truth. You know that from John chapter 4. What does that mean? In spirit simply means with all that you are. With your spirit, that you mean it. It's genuine. It's your desire to worship him in a way that he is honored. Jeremiah 29, 13 says it this way. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. By the way, who's he speaking to? Believers. He's speaking to those who are saved. Why do they seek him? Because he sought them. And now they are worshiping him in spirit. You will also worship him in truth. And friends, if there's anything that you hear me say today, it needs to be this. You don't want to get this wrong. You don't want to worship the wrong God. And you say, well, I'm not a Mormon. I mean, I'm not a Jehovah's Witness. I'm not prone to Catholicism. You know, they're all worshiping false gods. That's not what I'm talking about. Those are easy issues to, to display. But the difficult one is the tear among the wheat who kind of fits in. He's got a religiosity about him, or she does. There's been a pattern of involvement in the church. There's been a commitment to activities. Uh, There's been some good works, maybe a lot of good works. And uh, although there's uh, a pattern of sin that seems to be unbroken and there's no repentance, maybe it's anger, maybe it's bitterness, maybe it's um, just complaining, whatever, but but there's no real interest in, in being corrected. And someone tries to correct that, and the person responds defensively and says, how dare you, you know, that kind of thing proof positive that that person in the moment is not exhibiting Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that person is necessarily not a believer, but if that is the character of that person's life, no interest in confession, no interest in repentance, maybe it's because he's worshiping worshiping the wrong God. But, But that God is maybe very similar in characteristics as the God of the Bible because they've gotten a lot of the characteristics right, but they're missing something. You don't want to get this wrong. Exodus 20 verse 3 says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. 
This is to worship God according to who He truly is, in keeping with His own definition of Himself in His Word, the only source of truth. There's a massive movement today going on where you define Jesus as you want to define Him because your experience is the authority. So you're the standard of truth now, right? You become, your experience becomes the standard of truth. Well, what about the fact that your experience, juxtaposed to someone else's experience and someone else's experience, are all contradicting each other in some form, but the Bible never contradicts itself. This is why we keep the Bible as the baseline. We look at what the Scripture says, what it depicts, the precepts, the concepts, the mandates, the commands of the Scripture. And that takes hard work. It takes spirit-filled hard work in a church, a biblical church. Number two. Number two. Be repenting and believing in the gospel. The church not only worships the God of the Bible, the church, specifically the individuals within the church that make up the church, will be repenting and believing in the gospel. This was the command of Jesus Christ, right? In Mark 1, 14. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Let me just say it at this point. When a, a church or a member of a church, a person involved in a church says, yeah, we're committed to the gospel, ask, okay, well, what does that mean? <laughs> and be ready to answer it yourself when someone might ask you. Interestingly, there, regarding our, our membership documentation that we're involved in right now, many times the problem um, with being unwilling to complete a membership application is that someone actually doesn't know how to articulate the gospel. It's the absolute bare minimum that a Christian ought to not only know how to do, but be passionate about doing. What is the gospel? How were you saved by the gospel? And part of the problem is that in a lot of venues, they're teaching people to do a testimony that's all about your life and very little about Scripture. You've, you've looked at the application. You've seen that in it, we've defined what the gospel is. Kind of gave you the answer to the exam. But we've said, we want you to explain from the Scripture what it means to be a Christian. You know, some have said, well, you know, I don't really remember that one-time experience. The Bible doesn't declare that you should. So we're not asking that. We're simply saying you need to know the gospel. If you're saved by the gospel, you know what you're saved by. You know the information necessary. And you need to be able to be involved faithfully and effectively in discipling the nations. That's what we're called to. That is the Great Commission, that we would disciple others. And what does that involve? Dependence upon the gospel, knowing what it is. You and I need to be repenting and believing in the gospel daily. The gospel calls you, because of Christ's death, to your death. And me too. A daily dying to self. A daily denial of self. A willingness to find our hope, not only in the submissive father obeying life of Jesus Christ, the sinless life of Jesus Christ, not only his sinless life and his obedient death, his propitiatory, expiating, atoning death that was in fact substitutionary for all who would repent and believe in him, not just that, not just his life and his death, but what? His resurrection. His resurrection. Your hope is not in his life and his death. 
Your hope ultimately is in his resurrection. You can't leave out his life and his death, but your hope is in the resurrection. There you go. You, there's your answer for your application. You don't have to fill it out now. You can just get the tape and, you know, you can cheat on that one. I'll let you. But this is a regular process. This isn't just a one-time thing that you stick in a coffee can and put it on a shelf and wait until maybe 12 years from now you have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone. You're drinking from that. You're resting in that. You're finding the gospel to be good, not just saving, but sanctifying. Jesus said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And it's an ongoing, ever-practiced process for the Christian. He finds the gospel to be not just all-powerful for eternal salvation, but all-enriching for hope today. What do you do when things get difficult? What do you do when the pressure seems to be overbearing? You should turn first to the gospel, not ice cream. <laughs> ice cream is good. And turn to that if you want. But go to the gospel, you know, the whole comfort food thing, right? You know, we so easily and so quickly turn to something that's going to quickly alleviate some of the pressure, some of the stress, right? You need stress. You need pressure. Why? Because it's those things that help you determine where your hope really is. Are you finding it in the gospel? Or are you finding it in something else? You and I need to be repenting daily, regularly, and believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, well, I need a better definition of the gospel. I'll give you Paul's definition. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, he says, here's the gospel. Oh, really? Yeah. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Paul says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. And it's a reminder, he says, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, right? You stand in the gospel. It's a, it's a word picture, but you're standing in the gospel. The gospel is your foundation. It's your focus. It's your hope. It's where you rest. You're standing in the gospel by which also you are saved if you hold, there's a condition, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Maybe you heard the gospel and your hope really wasn't found in it. I've seen that before. I experienced that for many years in my life, wanting to believe that I was resting in the gospel. Or really, I wasn't. Living a double life. It's blasphemous. And yet a lot of people thought that I was in the Lord because of some terminology I knew how to use and some things I did. But ultimately, my life was proven to be a whitewashed tomb. And this is not unusual in our day because the lines by pastors, no, no, nonetheless, the lines have been blurred between what it means to be wheat and tares, what it means to be a believer and an unbeliever, what it means to be a receiver of Jesus Christ and a rejecter of Jesus Christ. All those lines have been blurred because we don't want to offend anyone. We don't mind that they die and go to hell because they were deceived into a false uh, decision that led to a false sense of security. But we sure don't want anybody to be, be offended. The gospel is offensive. It is certainly offensive. And it certainly separates those who are repenting and believing in the gospel on a daily basis. Paul goes on to say in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. I delivered to you what I received. You want to be an evangelist? You want to be faithful to Jesus Christ? You give what you receive. Now you, you need to be certain that you've received the right thing. You need to have received the gospel. Not some pressure to ask Jesus into your heart. 
Now, you might be tired of hearing me say that, but I'm never going to stop proclaiming the fact that that is a completely unbiblical idea. It's nowhere in the Scripture. And yet, you know people, and in fact, maybe it was you one day, it certainly was me years ago, and you'll hear this from pulpit after pulpit after pulpit. There's a system of churches that rests on this. It is, in fact, the foundation of their entire theology that you ask Jesus into your heart. It's not in the Bible. It's not there. So what happens? People say, well, I did that. So what do they think? I'm a Christian. Start asking questions about sin in their lives. Well, I don't know about all that, but Jesus is in my heart because I asked him. Oh, so you were sovereign, not he. You are commanded, as am I, to repent and believe in the gospel. We ought to be helping people know what the gospel is, not some oversimplified catchphrase that's not in the scripture that, by the way, leads people into a false sense of security. No, we should never do that. We should avoid that. We should disdain that. We should expose that because it's creating false converts. And what we should do is communicate the gospel. We need to know the gospel. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance. It's the most important thing ever. He, he delivered to us as of, of first importance what he had received. He's giving it to us now. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And many people would say, yeah, I've always known that. I've always believed that. Does your life reflect it? Right? I didn't ask, are you perfect and are you sinless? But I am asking, is this the hope of your day? Or are you just able to say when somebody else mentions it, oh, yeah, sure, I, I agree with that. Do you agree with God? that that's what's necessary for salvation? And do you agree with him in the privacy of your own mind when things get most difficult? Is this where you land? The life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul said to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 3, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. You see that? It's not just about being able to give some verbal assent to the gospel. Yeah, 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 I believe Jesus, you know, the, his, he died on the cross and the, and the resurrection. No, no, but that it is actually bearing fruit. See that? been cultivated in your own heart by your will, by your interest. Not just eye service or even lip service, but again, Paul says, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So you heard it, you understood it, the testimony now of those who know you is that it is bearing fruit. Not just that you can kind of angrily say, yeah, I know what the gospel is. You better believe it or else. No, that's not evangelism. It's not honoring to Christ. It's not helpful to you. It's not sanctifying. But bearing fruit. You're changing. You're growing. You're loving Christ more. Number three. Number three. Be baptized. 
How does the biblical church serve? What does her service look like? She is to be a group of people who have been baptized by immersion. You say, why are there churches that are amazingly faithful to the text of Scripture and yet they baptize babies? I think they're wrong. I'm convinced they're wrong. There's no such thing as an infant baptism in the Scripture. It doesn't exist. There is the heretical Catholic Church that baptizes infants for salvation. That's heresy. It's damning. And then there are faithful churches Godly people devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ but have interpreted a covenantal approach to baptism saying that baptism simply replaces circumcision and so they have a different hermeneutic. They have a very different approach to the Scripture which, by the way, is mostly right. So they're looking for baptism to be that which has replaced circumcision. When was a person circumcised in the Old Testament? Well, shortly after birth, unless they were grafted in as a Gentile into the faith, then that person was circumcised as an adult. But primarily, circumcision took place as an infant. So because they believe that baptism simply replaces circumcision, they think they need to baptize babies. The Catholic Church did it, keep your baby out of hell in case he dies because of the plague. You know, lots of babies are dying. Kept the people coming. If I can get my infant baptized and he dies, then he'll go to heaven, right? That's not how it works. The faithful believer in Jesus Christ symbolizes. You saw five believers in Jesus Christ who had already been baptized by the Holy Spirit, which happens immediately upon becoming a Christian. When is a person baptized by the Holy Spirit? Well, he's baptized by the Holy Spirit into the faith. And so those five people faithfully proclaimed the gospel by writing out their testimony with loads and loads of scripture that clearly displayed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then they obeyed him by being immersed in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned last week, it's my favorite worship service at the Anchor Bible Church to hear other people carefully, having put time and effort and thought into it in their Bibles, proclaim the gospel. It enriches my soul. It teaches me. It produces spiritual growth in me. It makes me want to be humble. It makes me want to be faithful. And you need that, as do I. As you know from Matthew 28, verse 19, we are told to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.41, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls who should be baptized. Only those who have exhibited a belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the gospel, not just his person, but his work. Number four, number four. The biblical church will commune with the Lord in his word and prayer. Commune with the Lord in his word and prayer. I'll give you two letters here, A and B. A is in his word. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer to his Father, Sanctify them with truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. And I would challenge you with regard to this in your own personal time in God's word to spare yourself and everyone else from 
trying to become the person who, who is only becoming equipped to correct others. Let the focus of your time in God's word be your sanctification, the stripping back of your sin, the exercise of that which leads to your humility, recognizing that there are things, there are holes in your theology just as there are in mine, that you are willing to look at the scripture that God would change you in the moment. Jesus asked his father to sanctify us in the truth. Paul commended the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, with these words. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what, for what it really is, the word of God, which also, listen to this, which also performs its work in you who believe. The person who's only ever trying to pit the Word of God against the Word of God is not experiencing the work of God in him that is sanctifying and life-changing. And this is why some believers will stay immature for a really long time. They're only endeavoring to find other people to be wrong even when they recite Scripture, show truth in the Scripture, and they reject it. They're no help to anyone. They're only creating problems for people. They're not involved in discipleship. They're not interested in Christ's glory. They only want to be known as a theologian. And that is a person who is prideful. He's not pursuing God's word for his own sanctification. Should there be involvement in correction among believers with believers? Of course there should. But that shouldn't be the primary focus of anyone's life in Christ. There's going to be a need for that. But there ought to be a focus upon us agreeing on what we know to be true and being changed by it, being strengthened by it. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. So the practice of one's life is to drink deeply from the fountain of God's holy, inerrant, all-sufficient word. And if there's some need to be engaged in a discussion about where he or she thinks someone else is wrong, then that's a, it's a secondary issue. He wants to be like Christ. So he reads and studies and meditates on Christ's words. Letter B, letter B under number four, prayer. Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. And I think you can do that probably to a greater degree than you are, right? Let me, let me explain what I mean. I'll just give you the math here. Do you pray without ceasing? No. So you can probably pray more than you do. I can and I find more and more and more that when I'm in the Word, when I'm engaged in it, attempting to help people honor Christ, and others are engaged in helping me to honor Christ, I am more inclined to look to God, to think of Him throughout the day, whether I'm walking from one room to the other, whatever task I'm involved in, even when discussing something with someone else that's of a heavy nature, find myself calling out to the Lord. I might not be doing that audibly. Many times I do, many times you do, but we ought to be praying always. So in prayer, 
And I'll give you a few subpoints here for God's glory. You see a prayer for God's glory in the disciples' prayer in Matthew 6. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does that mean, hallowed? It comes from the word holy. Sanctified, set apart, glorified, may your name be. We should be praying for our sanctification. In John 17, which I always already referred you to, you see Jesus praying for the sanctification of believers. You should be praying for the unity of the body. You see that also in John 17, that the body would have unity, that they would be one with the Father and with Him. We should be praying for boldness to proclaim the gospel. Paul asks for that. He asks that believers would pray for him as he declares the gospel, that he would do it with boldness. You should be praying for your enemies. That might be a hard thing to do, but you might find that some people are not actually your enemies if you begin to pray for them. Maybe the work needs to be done in your life as you pray for that person. Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies, that we should love them and pray for them who persecute us in Matthew 5. We should be praying with thanksgiving in Philippians 4, verse 6. I think one of the richest passages of Scripture in all the Bible with regard to becoming a person who actually trusts the Lord. And, and I think maybe more so in our era than ever because there is so much emphasis on this idea of medical anxiety or clinical anxiety. Well, I was born with it. Really? Or is it the result of a constant focus on something that you can't control and shouldn't control? Or maybe a constant wrong focus on something that you can control, but you're going about it the wrong way. Where do you start with a thankful attitude? Listen to this, Philippians 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. It's a command. If you're being anxious, you're sinning. Yes, I've had this discussion with many, 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 many people. And I've seen all kinds of exegetical gymnastics, grammatical gymnastics in an effort to prove that Jesus is doing something other than insisting that we not be anxious. Jesus in Matthew 6 and Paul here in Philippians 4. But the command is that you not be anxious. Therefore, if you're being anxious, you're disobeying Jesus Christ. You're disobeying Paul in the name of Jesus Christ as well. Now, if we stop the conversation there, you'd leave mad, right? Some of you, because you would say, well, you don't understand what's leading to my anxiety. I would say in many cases, no, I don't, but I know that this is the command of Scripture, but I know that Paul doesn't just say that. Listen to what he says. Be anxious for nothing, and then here's the solution. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So express your requests to God, but be thankful. Your problem, as is mine, as is those in Romans 1, who are eventually turned over to a depraved mind, is a knowledge of God without thanksgiving. Leads to anxiety. Number five. Be faithful to your local church. Jesus expects you to be faithful to your local church. That obviously implies that you have a local church. And that also implies that you only have one local church. You say, well, I don't like that. I like the consumer mindset. I like getting this from that church and this from that one and this from that one. You've got to devote yourself to a local church. How, how could you possibly be effective in three local churches? It's not possible. It's not practical. But the real issue is you won't find the pattern anywhere in the Scripture. You say, well, Paul the Apostle was devoted to a lot of local churches. Oh, so you're Paul the Apostle now, right? 
No. What was Paul doing? Paul was planting churches. And so his involvement in certain churches was the result of being an apostle who not only planted them, but had oversight of them as an elder at large. And what did he do, though? He established elders in every church, he tells us in Titus 1. Why? So that those elders could shepherd a particular flock. Being subject to the leadership is what believers are called to. And those believers then have not only a responsibility to those leaders and to the rest of the flock, but they have a responsibility to let every other flock know that I'm no longer part of your flock if I once was. That I'm associated with this flock. There's no such thing as a multi-campus Christian. Let me ask you this. Are you reliable? Does the body of Christ with which you are part know that you can be counted on? I think a good question to ask is, I don't think this is unreasonable to ask this. What do you expect me, and, and I mean me, Todd, what do you expect me to be involved in? That's what you should be involved in. That's it. It's that simple. There's no different standard for me than there is for you. You say, but it's your job. It's way more than my job. The church is the love of my life. I don't want to be found faithful to anything else. The church meaning Christ and my family, the body of Christ. You're called to an eternal responsibility to be committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. Are you reliable? I'm not asking, do you have perfect attendance? Get that idea out of your head. Are you reliable? Are you trustworthy? Do you engage? You're saying, but I'm, I'm still kind of new. I'm still just getting to know. Good, please do that, right? You need to do that. We need to do that with you. But at some point, you need to be setting the standard for those who are newer than you so that when people come into the flock, you can help them know how best to get involved in the body. By the way, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. So what we're not talking about in being faithful to your local church is to bring people with you. Am I saying don't bring people with you? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying if, if you're convinced that the Lord would have you bring someone with you, then do, please. But don't feel overburdened. You know, we're not going to have high attendance day at the Anchor Bible Church. We're not going to ask you to, you know, bring more visitors this year than you did last year. We don't keep track of that. Are you reliable? Not only to communicate truth with your life in the workplace and in your home and wherever you go, but when people think of you, do they think, now there's somebody that will get it done because he has gotten it done. You say, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that person. You know what? All of us have been where you are. <laughs> There's no reason to say, you know what, I'll, I'll never be as effective as that person. You can't think like that. You must think the Lord has me where he has me, and if I'm in a moment of conviction by the Holy Spirit, then I, I simply need to be faithful. Isn't that great? Faithfulness levels the playing field. I can't be any more faithful than you can be faithful. No one can. We all have the same ability to be equally faithful. And so you're, you're not to look at me or anyone else as the cookie cutter with regard to giftedness 
or literal actual involvement moment by moment, but that you would be called to faithfulness. Maybe there's an extenuating circumstance in your life that prevents you from being involved in our structured discipleship. There have been people in that circumstance for a time. Their lives are difficult. And for whatever reason, it's been, it's been so difficult that they have literally been unable. But I think faithfulness means you as an individual and with your family are going to sort that out and say, what can we do? How can we be effectively involved in our local church, serving in our local church in a way that others could grow as a result of seeing our involvement, that we could help them in their involvement as well? It's important to understand the distinction between the universal church and the local church. There's not a lot of discussion uh, detailed discussion in the scripture about the universal church. There is discussion about the universal church. Christ died for the church. When Acts 20 tells us that God shed his blood for the church, who's he talking about? He's talking about the universal church and only the universal church. But when you see a, a letter written by an apostle to a church, who's he writing to? He's writing to a group of people, many times less than a hundred a group of people who are a local church. And so there's no concept in the Bible of, again, being devoted to a number of local churches, but one local church. Now, you, you say, well, Todd, are you saying if I'm devoted to the Anchor Bible Church, I can never leave? <laughs> no, I'm not saying that. I, I don't think that way. I, I don't want you to think that there would be any pressure on, on you with regard to that. I'm simply saying as... Jim Elliott once said, wherever you are, be there. Wherever you are, be there. And in due time, certainly, the Lord will take some of you elsewhere. I mean, he's going to take all of, all of us to heaven eventually. And the hope would be, if the Lord hasn't returned yet, that this church would continue to be a beacon of hope in, in our community. So eventually... You know, I'm just going to take a wild guess and say 100 years from now, none of us will be part of this local church. But the hope would be that between now and then, our devotion to a local church would be maximally effective and submissive to the Lord Jesus Christ. The pastor author in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near, right? Um, being faithful to assemble together, not forsaking the assembling together. In other words, you assemble with your Local church, that's your regular practice. And again, not looking for the gold star that comes from perfect attendance, but looking to be faithful. That people will know you're reliable to be with them on the Lord's day. That you will be reliable to be effectively involved in discipleship. That you will be reliable to be effectively involved in the exercise of your spiritual gifts with another group of people. And for us, that venue is the family group ministry. We've done everything we possibly can to provide opportunity for you to be faithful in that way. 
New Testament Christians gathered together for the word and breaking of bread on the first day of the week in Acts 20, verse 7. They worshiped in collective giving in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, on the first day of the week. Why do we gather on the first day of the week, on Sunday? Well, that's part of it. It's not a mandate in Scripture. That Colossians 2 tells us to not let anyone judge us with regard to a day of worship or what we eat. You think of a particular sect of people who judge everyone else for just that, the Seventh-day Adventists, right? That's the whole idea. It's all based in that. We're going to judge everyone else with regard to the day of worship and what you eat. Paul says in Colossians 2, you must not do that. So we don't do that, but we do choose to worship, to gather on Sundays, the first day of the week, because it is the pattern in the scripture of the early church, but also because what happened on Sunday? A little louder? Yeah, thank you. The resurrection took place on a Sunday, and so we don't gather to observe the Sabbath. It's not why we gather. The Sabbath being Saturday in the Old Testament was a picture of what would come, and that ultimate picture is in heaven. We don't gather for the Sabbath. We gather to celebrate the resurrection. It took place on a Sunday. But know this. Demanding a convenience-driven relationship with the church is like saying, yes, I want to be married to you, but I'm really not interested in having a wedding. Mutual ownership of our belongings or even a marriage certificate. Those things are not of interest to me. I just want the benefits of being married to you, not the obligation of an official attachment. That really symbolizes what it is like when a person says, I want some involvement. I want to be able to come and go. I want to be able to dip my toe in and figure out whether or not I like what's going on. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. You've heard me say this before. The body needs you. The body of which you are a part needs you. And I don't care who you are in this room. I'm talking to you. Whatever local church of which you are a part, maybe you're visiting with us today and you have a local church, that local church needs you. But let me give you three venues in which you and I must be faithful to our local church. I believe that this devotion to the local church really means faithful involvement and attendance, right, in three connected settings. Not three different venues, but three connected settings. Obviously, letter A, faithful participation in the corporate worship service. Faithful participation. And again, Brad stated it this morning. You are teaching when you sing. You say, but I'm just learning this song for the first time. Yeah, and there are other people in the room who are as well. And so as you sing with full voice, with loudness of heart, with great joy, you are communicating truth to that person. And what's happening? They're seeing that you're convicted, you're impassioned, you love Christ, you love his word, his word has changed you. And so you are having an impact on that person's life. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26 says, What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. You say, well, wait a minute, there's a mix of things there. I'm not sure, I'm not sure we're doing all those things, are we? Some of those things are still for today and some are not. 
And one of the ways we know that they are not in practice is that they're not being done for edification. Plenty of pseudo-tongues speaking, which is gibberish and not an actual language. The tongues of the Bible was always an actual language, never gibberish, ever. Never. So is it edifying? No. No. It builds a person's self-worth, which is never the intent of Scripture. But to faithfully participate in the worship service. We'll talk more about the gifts, as I said, in a couple weeks to come. Letter B, then, letter B, spirit-filled discipleship. Spirit-filled discipleship. You know, the person who really is engaged in relationships for the purpose of being less like self and more like Christ. You say, but, but Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And yes, there should be people in your life who are imitating you as you imitate Christ. But what should you be doing in your efforts to be a person who is worthy of that emulation? You should be becoming less like self and more like Christ. So if that's your desire in discipling others, and that's your desire in being discipled by others, then that's the right desire. That's the idea. Men, that's why we have Iron Men. Ladies, that's why we have WOW. Young men and women, that's why we have 116. That you would, in fact, be growing in likeness to the image of Jesus Christ. Spirit-filled discipleship. And then letter C, the development of your spiritual gifts. Being faithful to your local church means the development of your spiritual gifts. Now, yes, that's going to happen probably to some degree, kind of by default, just as you sit in the worship service. If you hear sound teaching, you're engaged in discipleship. But the discipleship venue, whether it be the the structured venue we have or the greater purpose of our discipleship, that one-on-one, one-on-two, maybe one-on-four or five, you know, the real-life discipleship, in Jesus' case, one-on-twelve, that is ultimately designed to lead to a greater likeness to Christ, but it's not strategically designed to cultivate your spiritual gifts or even to help you discover them. That's why we have family groups. I'll just give you a personal testimony of our, my own little family group that I love dearly. Uh, we see individuals in our family group exercising their giftedness. I mean, in ways that sometimes are, are, are mind-boggling. When there's a need and there's this my, my uh, football coach in college used to, used to say about you know, us as a defensive unit, it should be like a swarm of bees. You know, that guy's got the ball. It should be like a swarm of bees on him. And, I, and I've seen that. You know, one person has a, a need. It's like a swarm of bees rushing to that person. How can we help? And not just how can we help, here's how we can help. That's how Christians ought to serve each other, right? Not just, hey, how can I help? But I'd like to help in this way. You know, Mark Millsap has showed up at my house more than a few times with food, and I didn't even ask him for it. And by the way, it's awesome food. (laughs) You see that in that family group setting. I honestly have never heard, we started our family group ministry in September. Not one time ever have I heard a negative comment about a family group. Maybe you have, but you know... um, I haven't, and, and I'm overwhelmed by the innumerable 
positive comments. Why? Because it's the church. It's how the church works. It's how the church discovers its giftedness. It's how the body discovers how the body works. And there are other ways where that, as I said, kind of happens by default, but not strategically. And this is where it happens strategically. So you're seeing other people exercise their gifts, and you're encouraged, and you're saying, what are my gifts? I wonder what my gifts are, and we're going to help you with that in the next couple weeks. I'm going to talk more about that. So the worship service, but also discipleship, and then also the family group ministry. So in an effort to understand better the biblical church and her service. We've looked at five things today. We are to worship the God of the Bible in spirit and truth. We're to be repenting and believing in the gospel, knowing the gospel and repenting of sin and believing in the gospel. We're to be baptized by immersion in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're to commune with the Lord in his word and in prayer personally, right? To be faithfully, deliberately involved in prayer and personal Bible study. And then you are to be faithful to your local church, a local church, local church in which you have found solace, strength, and comfort, and challenge, right? You know, people are speaking the truth in love, speaking truth in love to you. 